Hello and welcome to Future Proof Folk, the podcast where we chat to fascinating people working on exciting projects which keep the folk music scene in England moving forward, growing and generally staying amazing. I'm Owen Ralph. Last time we had a really interesting chat with Sarah Jones, who is the programme manager for the National Youth Folk Ensemble. We talked a bit about music education, folk music provision for young people in general and more. So do give that a listen if you haven't already. But this week we move into the realm of professional folk music as we talk to Tom Besford, who is the chief executive of English Folk Expo, which is one of the most important industry events for folk music in the UK. In the first half, we discuss English Folk Expo and also the notion of heritage as applied to folk music, before talking a bit about folk music's position within our culture and also looking ahead to the future. So Tom, thank you for joining me. Um, so you are the Chief Executive of English Folk Expo. Um, for those who don't know what that is, give us a quick summary of what the, the organisation does. Uh, so English Folk Expo is uh, an Arts Council England uh, national portfolio organisation, which basically just means we receive regular money from Arts Council England to support the English folk roots and acoustic music sector. And we do that through a couple of ways. The primary one is through a music showcase, which happens every October and runs alongside the Manchester Folk Festival, uh, where we put on about 40 to 45 or so great artists, and then we invite about 180 music industry from all over the world to come and see them and the idea is that they see them think they're amazing and put them on their stages or work with them in some other way and the second kind of route through that we have is that we have a mentoring program that looks at professional development skills and export readiness for english folk roots and acoustic artists and what what are your kind of long-term hopes for the organization the long-term hopes for the organization are simply that we want to support the sector to make sure that there's more opportunities for people who want to be professional musicians um, in this uh, in this genre. So we want to expand the genre, expand the audience base, but also expand the kinds of places that are booking that sort of music. So so grow festivals or grow venues into thinking about English folk roots and acoustic music as a genre, um, which is a bit tricky nowadays because loads of artists don't want to pigeonhole themselves into a genre. And also loads of audiences don't want to do that as well. But within the industry, we're so used to talking about genres. You know, I'm into Americana, I'm into jazz, I'm into world. But actually, what we're trying to do is to say, look, all of this is amazing music, and we just need to get as much amazing music out to as many people as we possibly can. So I suppose long term, what I'd like to see is a sustained growth of our sector to mean there's more audiences and more opportunities for people to do this as a career. Do you think the label folk music is still a valuable term to be using, or is it holding holding us back do you think you know it's it's, it's funny i was uh, having exactly this conversation yesterday afternoon i was at an event um, so whilst we're recording this it's just about to start the americana music association conference um in london and yesterday i was at an event with some canadian delegates that were talking about the term americana and they were saying that for american musicians from canada they just can't use that term because of all the connotations and links with America and what that all means and you know and how when they're trying to book those artists it isn't always necessarily a helpful term so many of them use the word folk now in, in a funny kind of way it's almost the opposite in, in, in certain parts of the UK I think it's gradually changing but I think that folk uh, always sometimes refer to it as the F word uh, because immediately people just imagine what they think that means uh, and we are actively trying to make sure that people understand that it's a very very broad church so i think genre labels are helpful because they help audiences that are already existing and linked in identify what kind of stuff they're into but at the same time they can be restrictive and also folk has got this really weird double meaning you know it can mean very trad 
folk music that you know that we might in, re, that we might enjoy in uh, some of the more traditional folk clubs or folk festivals. But it also, if you type in folk into a Spotify playlist, you get a very different selection of music than uh, if you went down to uh, to, uh, to your local folk club. So I think genre labels are interesting, and I guess we work within them. But I'm not sure that they are necessary outside of the industry. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit, I think. Um, first, the English Folk Expo has, over the past couple of years, uh, joined up with, we say joined up with Manchester Folk Festival or kind of grown into Manchester Folk Festival? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a complicated relationship that we are constantly looking at and evolving. Um, so the, when English Folk Expo, when the idea was first created for English Folk Expo, um, we modelled it on a brilliant event called Showcase Scotland, um, which happens at Celtic Connections every January, early February, late January, in fact. It's happening later this week, and I'm heading over there for, for another brilliant few days uh, of, of networking and seeing incredible music. Um, so the idea is you have an existing public festival which showcases 30 or so artists from whatever genre you want to, to work with, and then you attach to that public folk festival... Uh, a delegate section, which basically means the delegates go in and out of the public gigs and see the artists performing to real live public audiences and see how they react. But also, when those public gigs aren't on, that those delegates then also have delegate-only opportunities throughout the course of the day. So when when this idea was created, uh, we decide uh, it was decided that we needed to piggyback on a festival, and in fact, there weren't any festivals of exclusively English folk roots and acoustic music in existence at that time. So the the, the founders, uh, Terry O'Brien, fantastic agent, just brilliant all-round folk superstar. You know, she's a... Uh, well, she's brilliant, Terry. She's, uh, she's my long-term, long-suffering colleague and friend for many years, and uh, and, and she's, uh, she's really a, a force for how to drive folk music forwards. And also the incredible Katie Spicer, the chief executive of, uh, of EFTIS, um, so the two of them were, were developing this idea and they approached David Agnew who is the uh, artistic director of the Berry Met in Greater Manchester uh, with the project and he said well okay well I'll create a festival of folk music uh, so he created a festival in Berry called Homegrown and we ran this festival from about 2012 to 2016 and English Folk Expo was originally taking place in, in Berry in, in Greater Manchester and then we realised that the popularity of the industry side of it was was really significant, um, and one year we outgrew the number of hotel rooms in Berry, which was a wonderful first home for us. So um, Terry and I put the uh, put English Folk Expo out to tender. Essentially, we didn't think it was a problem for English Folk Expo, even necessary, to become peripatetic to to litter England with folk festivals would be no bad thing. So we put it out to tender and uh, had a few uh, really interesting and excellent uh, tenders. And in the end, the one that won was Manchester Folk Festival. And part of the reason for that was that our existing relationship with David Agnew as an artistic director, as a programmer, as a colleague and friend, decided to launch a festival in Manchester in an amazing set of venues. Uh, And we just thought, well, how could we not? So it felt like a real step up for us to move into central Manchester. So officially, the festival is, is separate from English Folk Expo. One is a public entity that anyone can attend and the other is an industry showcase, essentially a marketplace for the for the broad church that is the folk 
uh, roots and acoustic genre. So, yeah, it, it, is, it is separate, but we are working together in a number of really interesting ways, uh, including a really exciting commission we've got coming up later in the year. Tell us a bit more about that. So many people may know, uh, 1819, there was the Peterloo Massacre happened in, in, in Manchester, uh, which was basically the people of Greater Manchester were feeling disenfranchised, disempowered, they were upset by a ruling elite that didn't have, um, they didn't feel had their best interests at heart. Uh, they were having stagnating wages. They were having uh, rising food prices because of a trade war with Europe. And they were galvanised by folk song, by poetry, by strong orators. And they marched on uh, central Manchester, on St Peter's Fields, to the seat of uh, of power there. And they were met by the mounted uh, Manchester and Salford Yeomanry uh, who uh, essentially attacked them and tried to drive them away. Now, I think that's 200 years ago and when you look at the themes that are part of those things, freedom of speech, democracy, protest, many of these themes are, are still just as relevant today as they were back then. So we have, uh, working with EFTUS, working with Manchester Folk Festival and English Folk Expo, the three three partners, We've uh, secured some uh, commission funding from uh, from a, a few sources. Uh, we've commissioned Sean Cooney, obviously singer of the Youngins, and a brilliant, uh, brilliant uh, theatre practitioner and a playwright, uh, Debs Newbold, who worked on the Will Pound Through the Seasons. Uh, and they're writing... We're still trying to find how we badge it. I've been calling it folk opera, some people have been calling it song cycle, but we're basically, they're writing uh, a piece at the moment which will uh, open at home in October... Uh, at home there is our hub venue at Manchester Folk Festival um, do two nights there and then go and tour around uh, tour around the UK for, for a bit so we haven't yet got uh, names attached to that to that project uh, but uh, we're really excited to explore those themes set 200 years apart and, and, and the stories that, that can tell And what would you say are the things that FX has achieved so far that you're most proud of? I think what English Folk Expo has, has done has created uh, a, an opportunity for lots of people who work or volunteer within the industry to meet up and to network and to develop ideas and to share thoughts. Because there was never really a chance when we all got to chat and get to know each other. And it's helped new promoters and new festivals meet with existing agents and learn things. It's kind of galvanised the industry behind it. So that's one thing that I think has been very helpful. The second is that it has dramatically raised the profile within the wider UK music sector of the genre. So for the first time, we've been able to have uh, a presence at, uh, or a stronger presence within those kind of larger discussions about what it means to be part of the UK music sector within, uh, as, a, as a niche genre representative, essentially. So, you know, the idea that um, uh, the UK music sector contributes about £5.4 billion to the economy, and where do niche genres sit within that? And uh, folk music comprises a... a, a a section of genres including jazz and world which comprise about 10% of that turnover so it's, it's a significant chunk and a significant presence of how that of how that's structured so just being able to promote that have that presence have that voice that's the second thing I think the third thing that we've done which has been uh, although we've, we've helped achieve which has been this massive growth in English artists performing internationally in a way that wasn't really seen that often more than 10 years ago so loads of festivals in Canada, in the US, all over Europe had Celtic fringes. And of course, Celtic fringes meant there was 
loads of uh, Scottish, uh, some Welsh and Irish artists performing internationally, but there weren't that many English artists touring. Uh, and I think we have helped develop a, a really strong program of English artists performing internationally. And there's some really great individual success stories uh, from that, you know, artists that now, uh, that now rely heavily on, on touring into new territories, into new countries that we've helped facilitate. Um, and that's been a really, really great thing for us. And I think uh, the, the, the final thing, I'm sure there's many more, but the final thing I would say now about our success stories has been um, the idea that we've enabled and created more opportunities for artists. So I really believe, and, and our evaluation and evidence backs this up, that we've generated a lot more uh, opportunities for artists to perform in the UK and beyond, which has meant there's more chance for the very best artists to be able to do this as a career, which is ultimately what we want to be, what we want to be about. Um, I'll just go off on another quick anecdote, which is that um, a few years ago, um, a few years ago, Tom Sweeney, who runs uh, the brilliant, uh, brilliant label Rootbeat Records, um, uh, was uh, giving a, a label showcase at one of our English folk expos, and he gave a really impassioned speech that sticks with me quite a bit to the delegates in the room. He said. If we don't take chances as promoters, as festivals, and invest in the best quality music, then uh, then the folk scene is going to is going to really struggle. Because if you can't put money into those emerging, really high quality artists, then only those people who are independently wealthy enough to make that to have their own living can do this. So he says you should invest in what you want the scene to look like, not what you think it's going to be at the moment. And I really I, I really like that idea that he's that in, of encouraging bookers of all types of all festivals of all venues of all folk clubs to take those chances and present to your audiences what are the highest quality artists that you can possibly find and your audiences will trust them and become more loyal to you because and, and take chances as well with you and that helps grow those opportunities for those amazing emerging artists and there's so many brilliant artists that are emerging on the sector so um, yeah and I, I like those kind of opportunities of seeing artists come onto the scene and you know, make a really strong go of it. Yeah, that's a really inspiring vision. Um, to, to what extent would you say that that public funding is important to making that happen? Do you think, because obviously FX is an NPO, National Portfolio Organisation, um, has that been kind of essential to your growth, or do you think the folk scene doesn't need that and there's enough money floating around? <laughs> yeah, that's right, there's, there's loads of money in the folk scene. <laughs> um, yeah, public funding is essential. This this only happens because of public funding. So, when uh, if you look at uh, the music scene in Scotland, uh, and you look at the investment that Creative Scotland put into trad or folk, you know it is significant compared to uh, percentage-wise what the English funders put into folk. Um, you know, there's uh, so it doesn't happen without that, and it and. It needs the active intervention. Organically, these kind of things just... I don't think they can grow as organically as maybe they could in the 60s and 70s because the music industry, the music sector, just isn't like that anymore. You have to have active intervention to present the right artists to the right delegates, the right decision-makers. So without public funding, that could not happen. It, it just couldn't. But for me... I, I mean, it, if you look at any or almost any other country that we work with, they have a really strong pride in their uh, 
I, will, I, I would call it intangible cultural heritage and their national identity through folk music, through any kind of customs or folk arts that relate identity to, uh, to location. And, and the investment in those things is something that is celebrated or cheered. I mean, in, in Ireland, you know, it's a, it, people are proud and knowledgeable about their folk arts, about their heritage, in a way that uh, I would think 10 years ago, certainly, that pride and that knowledge about the English folk sector wasn't quite uh, at that level, wasn't anywhere, well, it wasn't anywhere near that level. And, and, and it requires public funding to step in to give platforms to organisations like English Folk Expo and like EFTUS to, to give those opportunities to push that to push that brand essentially, to push brand England and, and uh, out there into the into the world, and to say, you know what, this is a really amazing, vibrant, and exciting scene, and we should be supporting it. Everyone should know about it. You know, you should be able to. to people should know what their local cultural heritages are, because I think the more you know about where you come from, and the more you know about what your geographical heritages are, the the more interested you are and the, the less threatened you are by other people who've got strong cultural identity. It, you know, it, for me, knowledge of our folk heritage is, is, it should be an essential core part of, why, of, of what we learn about, of what we know about. Um, and, uh, yeah. So when you were growing up, did, did, you, did you have that kind of knowledge of your heritage? Did you feel a connection to, to where you're from? Uh, no. Uh, no, I didn't. Not in the same way. I mean, I'm, I'm waxing lyrical about all this, but uh, these are the kind of things that the more I've thought about them over the past 10, 15 years, the more important it's come. It's become to me. And uh, now I'm a fierce, passionate advocate of, of Lancashire, of the northwest, of England, of the UK, of Europe. These things are... are th those sense of separate but con interconnected identities are really important to me now. But when I was growing up, I think I was only vaguely aware of those of the importance of those connections, and and when you look at the wider society, these are these are topics of conversations which are coming up again everywhere we look, and and I think folk music has something to say and something and a role to play in those conversations and discussions. <laughs> and did you ever hear much Lancashire folk music? So obviously there's there's quite a big repertoire, and you've got people like Laura Smith who who do a lot of that um, that Lancashire repertoire mm -hmm. is. Did, did that kind of enter your your um, life at all, or have you, you only kind of become aware of it since? You know, uh, in terms of folk music, um, I only really started getting into it when I went to university. So um, I grew up in a family which, went in, when I was really young, uh, my mum and my dad were both Morris dancers. And then when I was in my teenage years, we used to go to a couple of festivals, but I never went and watched any bands or gigs. I didn't really, I mean... It's terrible to admit this now, and I never, didn't really engage that much in in folk music until I until I went to university and, and ended up getting really heavily involved in the in the folk society there, and eventually eventually running it for a, a couple of years. Um, so it wasn't an intrinsic part of my upbringing; it was something I came to I came to later, and I came to it through understanding the impact that it has on communities mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and understanding the impact that 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 it can have on on groups of people who are taking pride in creating something together, creating something as a, creating something as a group, and learning about their own identity. So I was in the northeast uh, for about ten years, and my my first proper job was at uh, was at Folkworks at uh, Sage Gateshead, which is uh, I mean Sage Gateshead is an incredible building, incredible organisation. I could not believe when I when I got the job 
there working on the Folkworks team and, and seeing the seeing the passions of the regulars on those Folkworks programmes, seeing the uh, seeing how important it was to have a very strong sense of identity of northeast heritage, of, of, of northeast songs, of tunes, I thought, wow, we should all have this kind of passion about where we come from. If you go to Scotland, if you go to Ireland, if you, if you, go, if you go to Wales, people are passionate about where they come from like that. And in the northeast, this the people I was immersed with there were, were so empowered by their, by their knowledge of their, of their heritage and their history and their folk scene. And I, and I thought, this, this is something we should all know about. We should all be involved in this. And, um, and so that's when I started paying a lot more attention to my own, to my own roots and to learning about, uh, learning about the different folk cultures right across, right across the UK. Yeah, that, that rings quite true with, with my... Childhood. Well, I, I grew up in South Wales, and even though both my parents are English, I kind of I spent school learning a bit of Welsh, learning about mining, mm-hmm. kind of learning Welsh folk songs without really knowing what folk songs were. They were just the songs that you sang. Um, so yeah, it's, it's I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's something that we really need to kind of more, particularly in the southeast of England, I guess. Yeah. But you, you, you know, as you say, you grew up there, and you heard those things when you were growing up. They were normal to you. Those mm-hmm. customs, those songs, the idea that. People would come together from a, a, a small geographical location with a shared common interest, whether that shared common interest is the place that they worked or the place that they grew up, and they would socialise and sing songs together, and, and music was an integral part of what gave that community identity. And, and, and I meet so many people now who, who don't have that and who don't have that link. And, and I think that's I think that's something that's really missing from them. And then you know you can go to a lot of other countries in the world, and you'll find that same sense of identity is there, and it's somehow missing in in, in certain parts of England and certain parts populations of England. You you used the word brand earlier. Think about the brand of English folk music. Um, how would you describe the the brand of English folk music as it currently is? <laughs> whatever, whatever we want to, whatever we want it to be. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I love um, I love how much of a broad church it is. Mm-hmm. We uh, the brand of English folk music can be absolutely everything from proper trad, which is what I really love, to um, to uh, anything. Any, I mean, anything. We had. Um, well, this year, this year at English Folk Expo, um, David uh, at the Manchester Folk Festival programmed a great band called Tongue. Like, if you haven't heard of Tongue, go away and Google them. Brilliant, you know. And I was getting all these people, uh, you know, saying, "Well, this isn't folk. This isn't folk music at all." And then, uh, and, th- and then, but they've got a, they're, they're now booked as a headliner at Cambridge Folk Festival this year. Now, that does that mean that means in my opinion de facto it's folk you know they're playing at Cambridge Folk Festival they play at Manchester Folk Festival there's been a couple of other folk festivals that have picked them up and they come with an audience of 300 people who would never have attended your folk festival in the past and you book them and suddenly they're now folk or we think about an artist um, uh, so uh, I, 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 I've used this example quite a bit there's a brilliant brilliant amazing singer-songwriter called Lou Jackson great uh, great singer-songwriter and he was playing all the folk festivals for ages, uh, and he played English Folk Expo, and and you know I think he went to Australia off the back of it, and brilliant. And he, but what he was doing musically, really isn't any different to what you would find on any acoustic stages in the mainstream. So, but for some reason he was picked up by uh, you know he's picked up by the folk 
world and put into that thing. And so it's how we break out of those things, you know. Like, I suppose people like Blair Dunlop are, are the same. You know, he could sit very happily in any genre, but when it suits us, <laughs> you know, he's folk. And, and when it suits other people, he's, he's, he's not. Mm. And, and I think that's the, that's the beauty of, 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 uh, of it, really. And it goes back to our first point about what genres are. That, you know, these things are um, they're fluid and they're really only terms that are, that are, are centred in the industry. Mm. So brand English folk is, is whatever we push it out to be, I suppose. Yeah, I think particularly in the past 10 years or so, when you see people like John Bowden and Nancy Kerr, who have always been kind of really powerful uh, advocates for traditional music, then releasing their own kind of songwriting albums, which uh, obviously they, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's kind of their musical expression. But then, you know, they get that in uh, all the folk festivals. And you wouldn't think twice about not... You wouldn't think, I'm not going to book Nancy Kerr just because she's singing her own songs. It's still all part of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely that. Absolutely that. That's a really interesting idea about when when you create your own new music as opposed to taking from a historic canon, at what point does it not become folk? Well, you know, beauty's in the, in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? It, it? it doesn't become folk the minute you personally watching that band decide it is, and, and it is folk if you personally decide it is. I, I'm, I'm pretty fluid about these things. Yeah. Um, so in terms of how the industry is kind of positioning itself at the moment with the kinds of uh, the press photos you get artists using these days and I guess the kind of language we're using around folk music, um, how, do you, how would you say the balance is doing between, I guess, the, the, the kind of heritage associations and all of like, the, the historical side of it compared to um, kind of the more contemporary things? So you've got kind of artists like... T- taking pictures wearing leather jackets in a back alley or whatever. Um, do, do you think that it's good to have that range or does it need to kind of move one way or the other a bit? Uh, I think, again, I'm, I'm really open to whatever artists want to lead with. You know, the artists are the creative ones. They will make decisions that are right for them and their careers and all we want to do is provide them the opportunities to present their music to, to new people and to people who are returning to this, this sector. I think about it in, in terms of... Um, Artists in, in in Scotland. I mean, uh, the the way the Scottish scene has developed itself is brilliant, you know. And Showcase Scotland, which is you know, as I mentioned before, it's something we based our our showcase on, has been going now more than twenty five years, and so they've got a, quite a head start on us. Um, but last year, I was at Showcase Scotland, and Elephant Sessions were playing in the Fruit Market. Now, the Fruit Market is an amazing, massive, um, uh, massive venue, and it was packed full of young people basically just like out on, an, on a big night out, you know, watching Elephant Sessions. And I was chatting to a few people about, about this, saying, well, what band in, in the English folk sector could we do that with that could sell, you know, I don't know, I guess a thousand plus tickets to, uh, to, uh, to younger people who would go and have a right old rock out on a night out like, and, and listening to, to folk music. And we were talking about that. And, and I think it's just, it's that idea that when you're growing up in, in Scotland especially, you're immersed in folk music or, or those those traditional tunes in the same way that you're immersed in any other type of music. So you're growing up hearing music of all these different genres, and and there's no or there's very little stigma that I, I this is my perception of it very little stigma about listening to, to trad tunes as there is to listening to something straight from the mainstream. Which means that when you are learning to put those bands together. You know, really, I think bands like Elephant Sessions or, or loads of the brilliant Scottish party bands, they've kind of got like a almost a like a rock band setup 
where instead of a vocalist, they're playing tunes. Mm. Now, and that's completely normal. Everyone loves that, and that, that's brilliant. And you think, well, we've always almost kept folk separate from those cross-genre influences, so that when they come in, it's when they come into the folk sector, people go, oh, well, I'm not sure that that's that, that's folk, or or, or or not. I don't know. I think I think it's about normalisation of the genre from from the outset. Uh, so that so that there isn't a stigma about being interested in playing folk music or jazz music or world music or any other or, or any other genre of music that you can play all equally and that means you can cross those genres over you can fuse them together and you can create whatever you think is brilliant music. So thinking ahead to the future, then, what differences would you like to see in the folk music industry in ten years' time? Where the folk music industry, I think, is struggling to some extent. Is that um, because it's not got because it's not got a massive audience following compared to some other mainstream sectors? There's not a lot of money floating around for artists, and so not many artists have big teams around them. So in the mainstream, or if you're selling a decent number of tickets, you know you'd have a manager, an agent, a publisher, a distributor, uh, a label. You know you'd have those kind of those kind of roles. And in the folk music sector, those roles exist, but they're not as there aren't that many of them, and there aren't that, especially managers, really skilled, knowledgeable managers who are specialists in how their sector fits in with the wider UK music sector. There aren't really that many in the folk scene, you know, and and if you're doing it, you're doing it for a labour of love because you, I bet you could make a lot more money if you went into the mainstream. So I guess I would like to see more industry support longer term. But that only happens if the genre itself grows in popularity. Just to help those artists uh, that are are emerging onto the scene to have those opportunities to make the right decisions. You know, uh, we've had a number of uh, delegates say, I'd really like to book this band, but I just didn't feel they were quite ready for export. I didn't feel they were quite export ready. And, and, And... what does export ready mean? My goodness, you know, I'm not going to go into that now. But that's one of the reasons we've developed these mentoring programs that that that, that, talk, that equip those artists with those skills. Because ultimately, whilst there isn't all that money floating around to enable industry support for those artists, those artists have got to do it themselves. And we need to do everything we can to equip them with as much knowledge and expertise about the the business side of what they're trying to do. You know, I've met some incredible, incredible musicians who aren't able to do the other side of the business, and that means that their careers often can struggle as a result. Whereas those artists that are really on it in terms of knowing how to run their micro-business that is their music career, they're, they're the ones that often thrive and do really well, as well as being very high quality. So in order to improve this situation... Do you think it? Do you think we should actively be trying to blur the boundaries of, around folk music? I know we've, we've kind of touched on this already, but do you, do you think that should be an active goal? That it, it's yeah, that, that folk music isn't a isn't a, a fixed thing anymore. That we just we just let it go. Ultimately, we need to grow audiences that are watching and listening to and enjoying and participating in all types of music that we fit under this genre. So we need to have strong progression routes for emerging artists so that you can see these are the steps I take to do this as a career. This is how this is how it works and this is 
this is how this is the the kind of way that you can develop a career. This is how you write your business plan for being an artist. And we were talking uh, a little bit earlier about the idea that um, uh, that there aren't that many artists within our genre that are selling more than four hundred tickets. And we need to find ways, actively find ways that we can grow those audiences so that there are more progression routes. So that once you break out of those 250 capacity art centre venues, there's a there's a whole tranche of artists that are doing doing more than that, doing more venues, bigger venues that, than that. So it's all about growing audiences. And for me, taking I think there are there's no one answer to that. Uh, so blurring genre boundaries might be one. But equally, uh, doubling down and entrenching your position might be another. Who knows? Uh, so I'll take anything that works. If there's, if there's one thing that you could change in the folk scene right now that you think would change it for the better, what would it be? Yeah, the, the one thing that I think would make a really big difference to, to changing the folk scene is, is more mainstream playlists on radios, on, uh, on, on streaming services, were more open to putting different more broader genres of music on there. They were happy to take more risks with putting music that isn't all from a very specific group of artists or a very specific group of labels or a very specific group of, uh, uh, of genres. I think, you know, over the, over the summer, was it over the summer when, we had, when Band of Love were, were, were created and played Hyde Park and they were on the Radio 2 playlist? I mean, that was, that was brilliant. Brilliant for those musicians, uh, of course, um, and because I imagine the PPL returns would be fantastic for that. But also brilliant for the genre, this idea that putting, even though it was a cross genre, disco and folk, even though it was a cross genre, just having it, you know, a fiddle or an accordion on BBC Radio Two, not in its own block. I mean, the folk show is fantastic, and, and uh, you know, uh, I really enjoy listening to it. But spread evenly across across the airwaves, that kind of exposure, I think, would make a, a really big difference to to, to how it. To the whole sector. What's coming up in the future of English Folk Expo that you're particularly excited about? Well, we've got some really uh, well. We've got a few a few projects coming up on the horizon. Um, one thing I'm really keen about is is trying to actively diversify our stages. Now, uh, we did a project last time with uh, last English Folk Expo with Both Sides Now partnership, and we're continuing working with them about gender balance and gender equality on our stages. And I'm really pleased to say that English Folk Expo has consistently always met uh, uh, met the criteria set out by PRSF's Key Change programme about gender balanced stages. There's still more we can do about that. And I don't and, and I think it's not just about gender balanced stages, it's also about gender pay gap and how those things work. So so that's that's one example of how we're trying to actively combat uh, or how we try to actually highlight an issue that festivals and promoters can consider. At the moment, we're working with a, a great series of partners called um, One is with One Voice, and one is uh, the One Festival of Homeless Arts. So we're based in Manchester, and uh, uh, Mayor Andy Burnham's flagship thing is that he's going to end homelessness in Manchester. Um, and what we'd like to do is, I'm really aware that there's an undercurrent of musicians who have Ed Sheeran being a, being a prime example of this, who have spent a large part of their early career essentially sofa surfing. They have no fixed abode. They're staying on friends' sofas. They are, uh, you know, even if they're not rough sleeping, homelessness takes many forms. And we are working with these organisations at the moment to try and to try and find some some artists. And we're working with some artists who have had direct experience 
of homelessness and we're supporting them in developing and we will be supporting them in developing their careers giving them the skills and the networks required to, to to help them make those connections but also giving them a showcase the delegates now you know something may come of that that showcase something may not but it raises their profile it puts them in front of those decision makers and i really hope that that might um have more economic social diversity on some of our festival stages and we're considering a number of other ways that we can actively encourage uh, uh, more diverse programming on our stages of, of all the characteristics of, of, of diversity uh, it, it's a really important thing for me that the folk scene has been for a very long time uh, especially the folk scene as opposed to the world music scene has been uh, very uh, very similar demographic on our stages and that means a very similar demographic in our audiences because audiences reflect what they see on our stages and if we can if we can help change those stage demographics then we'll change the audience demographics and that will increase audience reach and support the wider sector but we'll also do what is right here which is just generally open the genre up to, to loads more people who can all benefit and enjoy the music as much as, as, much as we all do. Tom Bessford, thank you very much quite a lot to think about there thank you very much to tom and to you for listening we'll be back in two weeks time with rachel newton who is of course a fantastic musician but is also doing a lot to talk about women in folk music particularly in an upcoming series of events she's curating at king's place in london so do join us for that this podcast is produced by greenwood side an organization dedicated to having more conversations about where the folk scene is at and where it's going if you want to share your thoughts on anything you've heard in this podcast, drop us an email at podcast at greenwoodside.co.uk. Find us on Twitter at Greenwoodside UK or look up Greenwoodside on Facebook. Please do also leave a review of the podcast in iTunes or whichever app you're using. To find out more about all of this, please visit greenwoodside.co.uk.